Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 205 of Human Factors Cast. Uh, we are recording this live on May 5th, 2021. And of course, this is Human Factors Cast with a little bit of a different twist this week as Nick is off. So I'm your host for this week, Blake Arnsdorf, joined today by Human Factors Extraordinaire and our typical healthcare symposium returnee, Elise Hallett. Elise, how are you doing tonight? Hello, hello. I am so good. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic. Thank you so much for hopping in to do this show for us and helping me out tonight to go over this. And uh, let's just kind of, without any further ado, let's hop into some programming notes and then we'll bring everybody the news. Um, all right. So up next for the community. Uh, so there's no podcast next week. So Nick and I are going to be on a bit of a hiatus for our little summer vacation, but we, we will be back on May 20th with a brand new episode. And for those of you that may be joining us for the first time, we have recently put out some HFES Healthcare Symposium coverage on our YouTube channel and, of course, on our podcast it, through whatever medium of choice you have. Um, and so you can check out things like the health, the student health design competition winners, a couple of different types of healthcare professionals interviews. Uh, so check those out and that can give you some health, some insight into the healthcare field. All right. So without further ado, let's get right into the human factors news of the week. So this is the part of the show that's all about human factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of human factors. This could be anything for medical, privacy, security, robotics, AI, you name it. As long as it has any relation to human factors and we can kind of get our little um, enjoyment out of it, we it's fair game. So this week, what are we talking about? We're talking about brain signals that can drive exoskeleton parts better. So this is a bit of a mouthful that I'm going to read, but we'll break it down piece by piece. So despite the promise of powered lower limb prostheses, uh, existing controllers for these prosthetics do not assist many daily activities that require continuous, continuous control of prosthetic joints, according to different human states of movement or changing environments that you might be in. The objective of this recent case study was to investigate the feasibility of direct continuous electromyographic or DEMG control of a powered ankle prosthesis. This combined with physical therapy guidance uh, actually showed some improved standing postural control in an individual with a specific type of amputation. So specifically, EMG signals were used to proportionally drive a pneumatic artificial set of muscles through this prosthetic ankle and clinical based activities were used in the training and evaluation protocol during the study to really validate, is this a measure that we can use or a new type of prosthetic that we can use? So in comparison to participants daily passive prosthetics, so without any kind of neural control, uh, they saw that training actually yielded a lot of great benefits in terms of much better scores in terms of being able to balance and be stable as you're standing. Um, so overall, this entire study really focused on the team observing rapid improvements and improve in performance uh, through training under load and further improvement in performance across training days as people use this enhanced prosthetic. Case study is really 
the groundbreaking research that is starting off a series of what will be neural prosthetics or prosthetics that can take into account what's going on from a neuronal perspective and how it can translate the movement. So there's a lot to unpack in this story. This story is actually a Cambridge paper. So if you're interested in it, you can actually go and read the full paper on their website. Uh, but Elise, before we dive into kind of the nitty gritty details, initial reactions. I know you had a little bit of time before the show to kind of look through this. What does this make you think of or how does it make you feel? Uh, well, right off the bat, Blake, it it was a bit of a heavy read. Um, it went into a lot of the, you know, EMG side. And um, I'm sure if I handed this to my sister, who is a physical therapist, she probably would have picked up on a lot of the lingo uh, pretty quickly. But, um, you know, once I got through that, I found it pretty fascinating because it's just, it's such a good example of really understanding not, you know, just how people move, but some of the nuances that goes into normal movement and bringing that into this because you know as you touched on there's you know quite a bit of dynamic movement that you know we do and we don't even realize you know especially people who have you know all limbs who aren't relying on these um pro pro theses. And, um, you know, so having that be kind of a focal point in this study, I found to be, you know, actually kind of a, a interesting example of, you know, really considering the human in the midst of, um, you know, this, this assistive technology. Absolutely. And I think what's continually mind blowing to me about this kind of research and this kind of work with prosthetics is just the idea that now we're trying to capture neuronal signals and use that to translate them into basically motor function or remembered motor function in some cases that allows somebody to have better access or more utility and mobility than they maybe had in a specific prosthetic. Uh, so one thing I do want to break down here is explain the problem space just a little bit more because that blurb is pretty dense, but it was something that I, I had to take a bit of a step back to really understand what they're, what they're researching at this stage. So to define the problem space a little bit, we're looking at lower limb amputees who are wearing a typically a passive prosthesis. So passive meaning there's no kind of pneumatics in it. They're not taking any kind of extra neuronal signals. This is a typical prosthetic that is literally there to help you, you know, be able to move, but it's it's only powered by you and your own biometrics. Um, now here, what we're really dealing with when we talk about this is there's often a decreased so postural stability. So maybe you're not able to stand correctly upright or it's it's a little bit lopsided which can cause different kinds of impingements that your sister would definitely be aware of. I definitely thought of her as we were going through this because they do a whole physical therapy uh, take on the training side. But anyhow, so they, they're looking at the fact that people with lower, lower limb prosthetics typically have different postural stability issues that come up over time. But you also have this compensation that you start to make. So if you can imagine if you were standing on, like, let's let's say for argument's sake, you had a, one high heel on and one regular shoe on. If you can imagine the the difference in height you might experience over time, that can like cause different kinds of limb issues as well as like joint pain because you're you're maybe having a lot more pressure on one side versus the other. Well, in this case, this is a similar idea that because there's a, a difference in elevation or a difference in kind of your normal leg versus what's going on with the prosthetic, you can end up with both this tough time standing and keeping your posture correctly, uh, but also getting a lot of joint issues. So this 
this can really lead to a lot of just different body imbalances. And it's partly lack due to the lack of, in this case, of degrees of freedom that your ankle actually allows you. Um, fun kind of anecdote here. This is something that I uh, kind of discovered over the past couple of months during COVID as I fell back in love with specific bands and things like that. And one of the bands that I was really interested in uh, for a long time when I was a kid, the band got in a big car accident or a big tour bus accident. And actually the drummer lost his leg in the accident. So now he has a prosthetic and a big thing that he talked about was coming back to being able to play the drums and rigging systems that would allow him to do so. It required some, the modification of ankle prosthetics. So like thinking of how that kind of movement and actuation allows you actually to do these finer motor skills uh, at the same time, that's what's really allowing you to balance and keep yourself upright in some ways. So it, in terms of solutions, so how we could combat this, this research team from Cambridge really started focusing on, well, okay, there's prosthetics that exist out in the environment today. What could we do to potentially help people um, over and above what's out there now? So what they've kind of come up with is adding both like a pneumatic actuator, if you will, to a prosthetic that is also taking into account neuronal signals through EMG. Uh, so it's able to actually give you a little bit more stability and control based on kind of the information you're able to provide it as you kind of move around or change your position while using this thing. Um, pretty, that's a lot to kind of think about there. I know we've, I've kind of like gone through a lot of this stuff, but Elise, from your perspective, is there anything human from the human factors perspective that would be really important to think about in a problem space like this? Um, I think, you know, kind of like what I alluded to a little bit earlier, just the dynamic movement that it, that is typically natural with, you know, how people are moving. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about how some of the passive prostheses um, don't don't really accommodate a lot of that. And, you know, we see that as a result, we see the compensation, right? And so typically if we're kind of making up for something or something's not quite fitting, then we see an, an overcompensation in some way, whether that be like a workaround on a website or in this case, something very physical with like the compensation in your body. And so I think, you know, with this, just like really understanding some of the nuances with with how you're getting that feedback, um, that, you know, something like a passive prosthesis doesn't fully account for. So, um, I think understanding just how, you know, we're, we're using that feedback. There's that internal cycle that's going on when we're trying to like account for something as simple as just standing upright, especially on like different surfaces. So I think that's, that's one area, um, where, you know, understanding the human side of it coming from that human factors perspective is so essential and just kind of understanding um, how to better, you know, support this for, for someone. What, what are your thoughts? It's kind of funny. So over the past couple of days, really, I've spent a lot of time kind of diving back into the user experience research side of kind of my toolkit, if you will. And something that kept coming up that I haven't thought about, and I, it feels like years is the biometrics and biomechanics that it is part of human factors. So that's really where this paper drew me. 
was that yeah. that this whole thing has really got to be based off of, and I, I'm assuming and hoping prosthetic design is based off of, you know, taking into account best practices when it comes to when you're assessing a patient and you're looking at kind of giving them some sort of prosthetic replacement, taking into account general rules and biometrics, but also like, you know me very well, you know, I've always been on a very like personal medicine kick or personal nutrition kick, but I would hope that there are systems in place that allow you to do some very custom and very specific prosthetic designs based off of the per person you're dealing with. Cause I would imagine every kind of case is a little bit different because of individual differences, accidental differences, whatever it may be. Um, so I totally agree taking into account both the human, them the human themselves and kind of how they experience things, but the, the underlying kind of neurophysiology that's going on, that's helping you stand upright and that's really what this is leveraging, yeah. which is really hard to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just kind of building on that point too, um, you, you touched a little bit on the individual differences. So my um, thesis, a little bit of my background with research deals with accessibility. And one of the, I mean, it's such a, a rewarding area to, to pursue in human factors, but it's also incredibly challenging because you have such a, a variety of individual differences that you're dealing with. And so this case study, I thought did a really good job in laying out, you know, in, in this case, there was one person who was involved. And so they kind of laid out a lot of the, the physical attributes with this person, but, you know, moving forward, it, you know, the, the types of amputees that you may be um, working with to support this, I think, you know, can really play into some, you know, really interesting differences. Um, the other thing that, you know, kind of came to my mind when I was reading through this is um, I, I actually teach an intro to human factors course through Cal State Long Beach. And I, I get a lot of physical therapy students who come through, you know, students who are going through for kinesiology. And, you know, there's the, the portion in the class where we cover ergonomics. And then, you know, there's a lot of others, other aspects in the course that, you know, focus more on the, the software and web design and, you know, th those areas. Um, and I think it's, you know, very relevant to focus on the interfaces that we're working with. But this is just such a great example of how much of a component, you know, the physical element of the human being and the physical characteristics are, are just as important in the field of human factors. And then also not just human factors, but really taking a multidisciplinary approach and working with the expertise of other people, like in this case, physical therapists, to really come to a holistic solution for someone in really, you know, in this case, you know, getting back some of their their stability and mobility. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that is something I often forget because I, I feel like I've spent most of my career engrossed in digital software systems or like UI design, but there is so much to be done like from a physical product design standpoint. And this is one of those areas where I think it's super important because like you mentioned, this particular study is focusing on one person to get the ball rolling for this particular type of prosthetic that's related to like ankle injuries or ankle amputees. So you would have to be able to retrofit it to a variety of types of individual differences. But on top of that, to kind of dive into the the really what's happening here of in terms of technology, this has got to be fitted with sensors as well that can't be uncomfortable for somebody. 
Um, so really what this is doing at the end of the day, so believe it or not, human neural control is highly adaptable to any context you're in. I mean, it's, that goes back to thinking about like neuroscience and neuroplasticity. And the thought process here from the research perspective was that maybe we can leverage some of that ability of the, the brain to grow and kind of adapt to new changing situations, like no longer having access to a specific limb could be used to help train and take signals and then push them as viable ways to control prosthetic or provide a prosthetic with more information, if you will. So in this case, what we're really doing is they're picking up these EMG signals uh, that are readily available through, you know, prior experience or training in this case. And then they're using that as a way to recognize specific patterns to allow for the, the pneumatics in the actual prosthetic to work work and give people a little bit more stability is really the focus here. Um, so this gets again away from the passive model of typical prosthetics. And now we're moving to something that's going to eventually be more autonomous is the hope of this early stage research. Um, so to talk a little bit about what we've done or what they've done here is the way, the way that this was tested is there was a specific training time, which you could imagine for something like this, where if somebody's had a prosthetic for a long time, has dealt with, you know, postural imbalances or these kind of different joint issues that crop up from having to stand too long on something that feels unbalanced, uh, they would need to go through a specific training protocol to be able to understand like how to use the new prosthetic, what it means to when you're like trying to teach the basically the machine learning behind this to gather signals and do actions for you. So really what they did is they kind of just gave people um, a little bit of time to explore the prosthetic itself. And then they did during this free exploration to help kind of reinforce training. What they did is they had people kind of at like do motions while standing up to get the prosthetic to actually fire. And what it would do is actually show you on the screen, like basically how much force you're putting in is making the prosthetic react to your force input, um, which is part of like the neural signal transmission that it's grabbing. Um, and from there, they really just focus on a couple of different specific tasks after training. So looking at load transfer. So this is a little bit of that. What does it feel like in terms of being able to move back and forth to keep your balance? Um, on top of limbs being more synchronized, so being able to have that very stable and equal, like not equidistant, but equal mass distribution across two limbs. And then also like st stability and standing tasks. So standing up for a period of time and being able to feel stable without having to necessarily keep hold of something. Um, apparently these are all very specific to the physical therapy realm. And these are things you would actually be rating. Uh, but those that's kind of the, the big test protocol here is giving some people very specific training so they can get used to this EMG style of a prosthetic and then getting them used to the task they would complete so that they can see if over time you actually get a benefit from using something like this. And so from here, the interesting part to me is really... I can hardly believe that this is the first attempt at something like this, uh, specific to the to an ankle uh, prosthetic anyway. But it's really trying to demonstrate the feasibility and potential of this direct EMG control. So getting us a little bit closer and farther, farther away from passive control where there's no kind of smarts, if you will, or no interaction with your neuronal system in an existing prosthetic and really trying to 
push the mark forward for these prostheses that get a little closer to eventually autonomous prosthetics where you may have something like a big machine learning system behind it with a lot of data to pull from you that it's interacting with you before. Um, so in terms of context, it did. we did see a lot in terms of what the paper has to show. We see that through training, you do get a lot more kind of enhanced standing and better posture and you're able to actually handle these load transfers much better over and above what a passive prosthetic prosthetic was allowing this person to do which is amazing considering this is such a kind of like outlandish in some ways technology that's showing even through just a little bit of training that you can see these massive improvements uh, that could lead to just better mobility in general. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. They said on the first day of training, you know, because they had a, a series of days that this this lasted, right? They said on the first day of training, they already saw improvements, which I like that really stood out to me because a lot of times when whenever I've seen, you know, someone getting used to a prosthetic, it, it takes, you know, a, a good amount of time. It's a little different. And um you know, just after that first day, they saw improvement on, you know, stability and performance, which is, um, you know, pretty optimistic, I would say for, you know, how this transfers, you know, to in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what made me kind of most blown away by the results is the, the relatively like short transfer from training. So that makes me hopeful, at least that something like this is not going to take very long to get used to because it, when it's stuff like this is in a research lab, I mean, we both have been grad students. We know like where kind of products in some ways start, where it's 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 not what it's going to be in the end product. In some ways, it could be even rudimentary. So if it's if it's this easy to use at this stage, and we're talking about like using EMGs to drive a machine that is basically giving somebody mobility back, that's incredible to me. And one thing that I there's probably very interesting from the physical therapy and the biometric side that I have not never really thought of until now. I mean, something that I spend a lot of time on, especially recently, is mobility. So like taking time to do exercises to recorrect some of my posture, change some postural things. Well, in this case, even if people were able to do that, that's great. But if you're an amputee, you may need something like this to actually help you keep that maintenance when you're trying to stand or when you're trying to walk or if you need to hold something under load. Um, so getting technology closer to what we resemble as like our physical form or like the, the bones and the bones and the mechanisms in the ankle is just incredible that we're able to start doing this with machines, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you you bring up a really good point too about the intuitiveness of it. You know, again, you and I talk a lot about, you know, interfaces and design and kind of in that element and the intuitiveness of of those interactions, but it's just as valid for something that's a physical tool that's, you know, working with our bodies in some way. So, I thought that was a really um interesting point. Um the other thing that was interested. There's, you know, obviously a lot of quantitative, um, you know, data that's included, a lot of analysis, um, you know, with that data that's, you know, cited in the paper. Uh, but one of the, you know, qualitative observations that um, also stood out to me in the midst of this is that the participant, after working 
you know, with this for, for a couple days, um, you know, sometime frame like that, he said he was able to, you know, expand the focus from the individual limb to the whole body, which I don't think was something that was as affordanced, you know, with the, the, um, the passive prosthetic. And I think that that also further emphasize emphasizes that point that you're making with the intuitiveness, you know, if it's able to, you know, really work with your whole body, you know, you're not having to focus on this new element, but really start, you know, almost folding it into like, you know, the representation of, of your body as a whole, um, you know, to then interact with the world around you. Well, that's kind of, interesting right because like bringing it back again to a little bit of my understanding of some some prolific pts that are out there like i i was just listening to something by kelly starrett who is a big guy in the in the physical therapy and crossfit world um and he was actually talking about because he had a full knee replacement recently and by by getting his knee fully out of pain he could actually and focusing on the mobility of the brand new knee which is a completely insane concept to me, but basically being able to focus and get that one part of his body that no longer worked correctly. Um, it allowed him to actually kind of feel like he had a more holistic system and it was able to really use his body, to the full potential that he didn't have while his like knee was a mess for about seven years. So something like this here kind of lends itself to a, a similar idea. And it's, it doesn't really surprise me that we're hearing from the qualitative side that yes, if I'm able to actually, you know, do things like be a little bit more stable while I'm standing or experience load and be able to handle it, maybe I can focus on different postural aspects or different ways that my, like, let's say my knee is tracking um, on that side that I do have the prosthesis. So it's, uh, it's, it's awesome to see that this is really trying, I think technology like this and ideas like this are really pushing the envelope to try and get people back to a much more mobile state um, that probably 10 years ago felt like a pipe dream, but this is something that has continued to grow. And I feel like I've seen more and more of it over the past two years on the podcast than I've ever seen it before. Um, so the, to kind of wrap this up, the biggest takeaway I saw here was that this is just the, the running ground. This is where things kind of get started because the, the desire it seems like is to really move towards not just EMG control, not just like direct control of a prosthetic, but for it to actually have autonomous control based off the environment that you're in and kind of like taking in your neuronal signals con in context of where you are and what you're doing to help the prosthetic again, make you feel like it's much more of your, your own limb. Like, like you may never have felt before. So it's a, it's an interesting line of research. Of course, it's very much in the beginning stages, but it's an incredible kind of read. And it's a, for a, for a research paper, it's not as bad to go through some of the analysis and statistics. So I definitely encourage anybody listening or watching live to check out the paper. We leave that kind of stuff in, in our descriptions and whatnot. Um, Elise, any kind of like final conclusions or things you want to say or takeaways for the story? Um, you know, I think it just goes to highlight the the amazing work that we can really do when we're working across different specialties here, you know, physical therapy, engineering, human factors, all kind of coming together to, you know, work through this innovative um, 
you know, problem set, right? And then, you know, really taking that dynamic internal feedback loop that we're using, our understanding of some of the different uh, musculoskeletal systems within our body to, you know, make headway on something that's very new. So agree with you. It's, um, you know, it's an exciting start to, I think, a lot of interesting research that's going to come down the line. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you were here to talk about this story with me because it does have such a, a cool connection to human factors, to physical therapy, to also like product design in general. It's something that I never think about. And of course, the underlying neuroscience to it. Uh, so thanks as always to all of our Patreons this week for selecting our topic. And thanks to our friends at cambridge.org for this news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles in our Slack and our Discord uh, when we find them. So you can join us there for more discussion. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. All right. So speaking of Patreons, I want to give a huge shout out and thank you to all of our Patreons and especially to our honorary Human Factors cast staff, Michelle Tripp. Uh, without your support across all the time that you guys have been around with us, we could not do this podcast. Um, without you, it's it's not as fun to do. And we just really appreciate what you've been able to allow us to do, such as, you know, come back to streaming and do much more video production type of stuff in the background and get a chance to do stuff like cover conferences and bring content to everyone at making human factors much more accessible. Um, just to throw out some extra Patreon perks that we have, or Patreon options that we've thrown out there. Um, so we have a $50 a month tier that is really just a, I really enjoy the show tier. It's more centered on, there's no extra kind of uh, perks or anything to this one. It's just, if you want to help out the show for one month or however long you're able to support, great. That's awesome. Uh, as a new kind of option here, we do have a show sponsor tier, which is basically a tier that allows somebody to put ad space on our uh, podcast. So you're able to, you know, get your message out there about a product company, whatever it may be uh, for a one-time fee. This is a one month only type of thing uh, where we only do it once. And that's kind of the end of that one. Uh, so be sure to check out our Patreon. For, and if there's any way you can support us, great. If not, we have plenty of ways that you can still help us and help the show grow outside of that. All right. So one one other set of features that we do have that we've started on and Nick has been working really hard on this is the human factors news roundup. So it's a new feature on our podcast or our pod page uh, website. So it's at humanfactorscast.media, you can see a roundup of all the weekly news that he gathers during his uh, Twitch office hours on Tuesdays. And then there's some stuff that just doesn't make the show because we let our Patreons kind of pick the story for the week. But there's a lot of cool stuff that comes up 
throughout the weeks, especially now that tech is like really booming again. Uh, so definitely check that out through either our website or through any of our social media channels. You can check that out anywhere. Uh, last but not least, we do have a merch store. So you can always, if you really love the podcast, you can check that out. There's a lot of kind of silly stuff that we put on there, um, such as the the worst review we've ever got onto t-shirts and stuff like that. So you can check that out at your leisure. All right, Elise, this is my favorite part of the show. It's probably the most fun because we can give a little bit back to the community. But this is It Came From. It Came From. It Came From. So we're going to switch gears and talk about It Came From Reddit this week. I think all the stories are coming from Reddit. So this is the part of the show where we search all over the internet, in this case specifically Reddit, to bring you topics the community is talking about and where we think we might be able to give a little bit of input. So at least how this goes is we just read through these and I'm going to hand it off to you after I read the first one and let you kind of give your take on it. Um, so first up, how do you handle a user interview when your interviewee talks too much? So this is I. This is from the user experience subreddit from I am just here to exist. I love your name. Hey guys, I just had my first user interview and it took longer than I expected. While I'm glad he was elaborating with each of his answers, he was taking too long and I hesitated to interrupt him. This resulted in skipping usability, skipping usability tests for the sake of time. How do you handle or lead an interview? Should I just allocate more time to my interviews? So Elise, th I think this is a perfect question for you because you have a lot of, I mean, a lot of experience doing user interviews, doing usability testing and dealing with and structuring these kind of events to avoid some of these pitfalls. So what help could you provide here? Um, a couple things. So first is just planning and buffer time. Like anything that you plan, you can run it through with one of your coworkers or colleagues, and it's just gonna fly by like a breeze it will take longer with actual participants. Like, you know, whether you're doing a usability evaluation and doing it with technology and it like something happens that you just have to like figure out on the spot or your participant is talking long, just always build in that buffer time, no matter what, because it will usually take longer um, than you originally anticipate. Um, though dry running it definitely helps make sure that you've got your questions locked down. You're really targeting the things that you care about. Um, and everything, you know, is you've got that timing expectation down. Um, the other thing that I kind of like to keep in my hip pocket is having like a cutoff point in the interview itself. So I tend to structure my interviews so that like the highest priority topics tend to be towards the front. So if it's starting to go long, then if I drop off a couple questions, it's not the end of the world because in my mind, the usability test, absolutely credit. Like if you've got that person coming in, like you, that should be a priority in that, in that session. And so coming in with kind of your, your topics in mind prioritized so that if you have to cut off time and you can't get to everything because your participants talking so much, then, um, you know, you, you have that as an aid going into it. So you can still get to some of the important parts with that session. Um, the third thing that I would say is, um, sometimes when I have had, I, I have had experience with this situation, I've had it quite a few times. Um, 
But I think one of the things that helps is, you know, sometimes when people talk a lot, part of it, I think, is stemming from making sure that you are hearing them. And so if you have nonverbals that are trying to rush them through, that might actually add to the problem. Um, so I like to use tactics where, you know, I repeat back things to them. I kind of roll it up as, you know, is this correct? And, you know, the more that they feel like they're being heard, sometimes, not always, but sometimes I have found that as the interview goes on, the participant kind of eases into it and, and has less to elaborate on. So those are a couple of initial thoughts that, you know, come to my mind just based on my experience. What about you, Blake? Yeah, that's that's the best advice I could like ever give, right? Just be strategic about what you're going to do and be ready for the thing that you tested inside with colleagues or whatever kind of testing process you went through to kind of go out the window as you start to really bring users in. I think one thing to learn from something like this is maybe it would maybe now you know from your first user interview, let's say if this was this was the case, then maybe it just needs to be shortened. Um, or like Lee said, making sure that that those upfront three to five questions are, you know, really worth the time. Because the thing that I'm a little bit concerned in this case about is I don't know that I would have would have felt comfortable skipping the usability test. And I think sometimes in the moment you have to pivot. This is not going to be a super popular from a very scientific perspective. Uh, but I mean, if I saw that I was going through user interview questions and I'm hitting, let's say, that 45 minute mark and I just don't have the bandwidth to really push the usability test, I'm going to leave questions unanswered in in the case to get that usability test done. Because I feel like that's going to be another uh, avenue to really gather feedback. And depending on what your usability test looks like, this could be an awesome candidate for it, especially if you're doing some kind of think aloud protocol. So I, I think being able to just quickly think on your feet and adjust uh, what you're doing in the moment is the best kind of advice that I could give. Um, now, if you're in a very strict scientific context, I totally understand you really can't get around, you know, making your interviews not have all the questions answered or at least asked. Um, but in this case, it sounds like it was in a much more applied setting because they ended up skipping the usability test altogether. Um, so just pivot with what you're doing and that can give you the best way forward, I think. But at least your your insight was really invaluable here because that strategic thinking about how you're planning these things out and being prepared for basically anything to happen when you actually sit down to do these uh, interviews or usability tests is really important to think about. All right, so let's jump into the next one here. So we've got one called entering the HF field. So this is from the skeptic at from the human factors subreddit. I was gonna say the human factors cast subreddit, but that's not the thing. All right. So hello, all I have a question regarding entering into the human factors field. I understand that the field is large with a lot of different requirements, specializations, but generally speaking, for those in the field, what would you say is the most important thing in landing a human factors job? I personally have a background in psych and an MA in clinical mental health counseling. I initially planned on entering the clinical field of mental health, but since realized that this is not where my passion lies. Currently, I work in sort of a research support role. I would love to work in a setting where I can assist in human factor in the human factor side of things that involve AI and or other forms of technology. Uh, with all that being said, 
what has been your experience in landing your first human factors job? Do you think pursuing a human factors master's or PhD degree is necessary or are there better ways of landing a job? Thanks. All right. So at least there's a couple of questions in here. Um, I, you might be able to tell why I picked this one because I felt like this was analogous to, to somewhat of your story. Um, but so let's go through these one by one together and we'll kind of knock them out. So for those in the field, what would you say is the most important thing in landing a human factors job? Let's start there. Uh, so <laughs> there's just so much in this post, Blake. Yeah. Um, the most important thing I would say, know your stuff, um, at like have a really good foundation of the methods in particular. Um, you know, if you don't have a good understanding of the toolkit, um, the, and the critical thinking that comes with, you know, the, the analysis side of this, then like that's square one, like start there and gain that. But the other thing too is, um, is, is the personality side of it. You know, human factors, a lot of times, especially in school, you know, after having gone through a master's program myself, they, they only just skim the surface of the personality side of things. You know, we work with a lot of different personalities, engineers, you know, developers, um, program managers, different stakeholders, users, and then our own team members. And, and so that ability to communicate um, in sometimes very tense situations, you know, when you're kind of butting heads against someone who may not agree with a recommendation you're providing. Um, and then how, you know, paired with your ability to think critically about situations, not take, you know, what the user says, you know, at face value, um, and then set up very, you know, methodological, you know, studies um, and evaluations. Like those three things, I think, are really going to set you up for success going into a human factors job, specifically in the applied field. Absolutely. I think those are really, really great points to drive home. There's two things I want to say to this part of the question, and I'll probably bring them back around for the specific job. Uh, the biggest thing for me from my from my personal experience is when you're looking for landing a job and it sounds like you have a background in something that's similar to human factors or like is rooted into it. So the psychology part. So I definitely think you want to like pick up something like designing for people which is a, a newer kind of textbook about human factors that actually Lisa's loaned me recently um, and really understand what human factors and human factors engineering is um, because it, although it's not unlikely in my case, it was, I had never heard of human factors until I went to master's my master's program for it. Um, so if you haven't had any experience, then do your homework and kind of understand the baseline methodology and what you're doing as a human factors professional um, and then practice being interviewed. That's, that is probably my biggest takeaway for the, the most important thing for landing a job is practice the interview and like seek out because there's a lot of great content, especially for people in the UX realm, both in the UX design side, the UX research side for how to interview for companies where they throw you very amorphous and difficult situations where you have to think your way out of the, the box for. Um, same thing with like developers, but I don't know that, that content is great for human factors people, but I definitely recommend looking up stuff like UX researcher, 
um, interview techniques and things like that, just to get you primed for it. And the last kind of part to this question I have, and our, our audience, our continuous audience is going to like yell into their headphones, I'm sure, because I say this all the time, but I really cannot stress how much your network can be very important here uh, because getting that first job, it's very hard. And for me personally, without the network that I had, I don't think I would have gotten the first internship or the first internship that led to a job or any of that stuff. Um, even though like I have a background and a strong background in human factors. Uh, so that's just stuff to consider as we go forward. Uh, all right. So let's hop to the next part of this question. Uh, so what has been your experience in landing your first human factors job? And this kind of cur curtails into the next part. So let's do both of these together. Um, so along with that, what was your experience landing your first human factors job? And do you think it's worth pursuing a human factors master's or PhD, or can you go and get a job without it? Uh, so I know your favorite answer on the show is to, it depends. Oh. Um, <laughs> shocker. You but, did I not. Mean, I, I did. I did. Um, but I mean, that's kind of my gut reaction here. I, so I can very much relate to this post because all my undergrad, I thought I wanted to go into counseling. So yes, my background is in psychology, but I took a lot of social psych classes. Um, the work experience that I had in undergrad was much more focused on setting me up for success in the counseling realm and much less on the research side of things. And so when I got to my final year in school, I was like, oh, uh, I, I actually don't want to do this full time. And now I don't know what I want to do because you can't work with a bachelor's in psychology. So, you know. um, yeah, so I, I took a year off and, and really took a step back and did my own research of, you know, and I heard about human factors actually from my dad, who is on the, you know, engineering project management kind of side of things with medical devices. And he worked with a human factors consultant. So that's how he heard about this field and worked with them very closely and, and came to, you know, be pretty familiar with, with what human factors is. And just, you know, because of my personality, it recommended I look into it. So I, like Blake said, you know, with the books, I went and got books on human factors. Um, I crashed courses. At, I was living next to UC San Diego at the time and literally just looked up online like courses that were kind of related to human factors. They didn't really have a big program at that time. It kind of developed after I you know, left the area, but literally would go and, and sit in on, on classes to just like hear about some of the basics and what they were talking about and just did my own research. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, for me, going and getting that master's was so critical for me in being set up for success in this field. Um, there are bachelor's level programs. There are, um, you know, thing resources out there that can help teach you. But the master's especially, and I would say, I mean, we can debate between master's and PhD. You know, I think that's sure. a separate conversation. But for me, the master's side gave me the applied you know, practice of what it is that we do. And also to your point with the networking gave me the network to set me up for success. So 
I, I don't know that I would have personally felt comfortable, like, you know, trying to jump into the field of human factors on my own. Um, you know, I'm sure people do it. There are a lot of resources out there. HFES, for example, has a ton of resources online that can really, um, you know, start someone down the right path. Um, but me personally, I, I found that having that master's going into this really set me up for success. Yeah. And I think you, you've, definitely made some key points here. So the getting your first job in human factors, I think in this very specific case, and I'm having to generalize because of course I don't know this specific person, but the way that they've set what they've told us their background is. So they've got a, a bachelor's in psych and then a MA in clinical health. So from my perspective, unless you have, you've had classes or you've done the work to go and understand human factors in a very pretty deep level from a methodology standpoint, at least getting some kind of education in it is going to be helpful. Now there's, it's really only since I've been working for the past few years that I've discovered there are bachelor's programs now that are focused on human factors. Uh, a good mutual friend of the show has a bachelor's in human factors and he's a great human factors engineer. Um, doesn't have a master's, doesn't have a PhD, and can do the job just as well as anybody else that I know. Uh, but the the key differentiating factor there is he has a background in specifically human factors. Um, I'm a big proponent of doing whatever makes sense for you. Uh, like Elise, I I found myself personally, I, in my case in grad school, I felt like I was ultra privileged because the the lab that I worked in gave me my first internship job, which happened to be connected with a NASA lab. And then later on, I went to an actual internship at a NASA lab and continued doing my thesis under funding from, from, from Cal State as well as NASA work as well. So on top of that, like I had already just by going to school and being a part of a program gotten more experience than I could have ever done just by myself. So the the master's program from that pure perspective for me was beyond worth it. And then the the fact that I had worked uh, in this lab was a part of this particular program. That was the intro to my first internship to job opportunity. So again, without the program, the network, I couldn't have gotten to where I was. Um, and I think ultimately too, from somebody who had just a psych background um, with a half a minor in philosophy, I couldn't really do anything for human factors with just that. I didn't know anything about human factors. I was working in a rat learning lab when my professor who was going to be my PhD mentor told me about human factors. was like, you really should go do this. I know you like aviation, blah, blah, blah. Cause I was a, a failed aviation engineer. And so that's how I kind of got my way into human factors was just through the master's program. Do I think that you have to have a master's or a PhD to do it? Not necessarily, but I don't know personally where you're going to get the kind of content that you need to be able to understand the, the baseline methods and show that you can apply them. That's the biggest kind of thing that might be holding it back here. All right. So Elise, any kind of wrap up thoughts for that one? Or are you feeling uh, feeling good about your answers there? I think I'm feeling pretty good on that one. Very cool. All right. So I think that that is going to wrap up the show for this evening. 
Uh, thank you, everybody, for sticking around with us. I know it was a little bit of a later evening tonight getting the show together for those that joined us live on stream. Elise, thank you so much for coming and hanging out and doing this podcast. Uh, we Nick and I really appreciate it. I'm glad that you were okay with sitting here with me at eight at night to go through some of these topics, talk about prosthetics and give some advice to the crowd. Um, and so as always, you guys can find us all over social media at human factors cast. Uh, you can visit our official website and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with the latest AH HF news, get things like the human factors cast news roundup. Um, if you want to support the show, uh, you can always become a Patreon. That really helps the show. But there are plenty of ways you can help outside of that. So if you want to help support the show, uh, but you don't want to do so monetarily, uh, you can leave us a five-star review on any of your podcast mediums. If you're watching us live or if you're on any of the streaming platforms, you can subscribe or give us a thumbs up or drop us a heart. Whatever it may be, it helps the algorithm let other people find the content. Uh, and always, you can find all the links to our socials and our website in the description of each podcast episode, be it on the podcast uh, medium that you like or the streaming service that you might be watching us on. So as for me, I have not been Nick Rome. I am Blake Arnsdorf. Uh, you can find me streaming on Twitch on Sundays at 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. on Pacific Coast time. Uh, and you can find me across social media at Don't Panic UX or in our Slack or Discord at Blake. Uh, Elise, thank you so much for joining us. Where can listeners go and find you if they want to get in contact with you? Learn Blake, more about you. prosthetics. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, if anyone has any questions for me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, full name is um, in the show notes. And then you can also find me on Slack. I don't know my tag, but I'm probably the only Elise on there because it's such a weird name. Um, but anyway, thanks for having me in the show. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. So that'll be at E-L-Y-S-E -E for anybody looking for in Slack or Discord. All right. So thanks again, everybody, for tuning in, hanging out with us. Thank you to all the people that came and hung out while we were streaming. Nick for coming, dropping by as well while he's on vacation. Uh, so thanks for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. And Elise, you know what time it is. Until next time. It, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>